1: this is they will kill a true crime podcast. I'm Sadie Ack and I am Courtney Ack and we're going to jump right in today. I've yes, got we some are. sick kids at home and yep. we're I feel like we're just like racing the puke clock. So.
0: <laughs> oh, everybody <laughs> I talked to recently who has children has puking children. So my yeah. heart goes out to all of you. Yuck. Yuck indeed. So yeah, Sadie's kids are home. We're going to it's an g- amazing story. We're not going to rush the beautiful story that our dear Deli Mozingo wrote us. Um, Thank you, Deli. But we're just going to dive right in and tell you this insanely, insanely awful story of the West Nickel Mines school shooting.
1: Oh, no. Good luck
0: to me and all of you getting through this without yeah. sobbing because no. it's rough. It's also very, it's a beautiful story. So please hang in there. I would don't necessarily know that I would push through a school shooting story if I heard. It was about a school shooting, but it's worth it. Trust me. In Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, nestled in between cornfields, barns, and silos, once sat the West Nickel Mines Amish school. It was a one-room schoolhouse made of stucco with a large school bell on top. But on October 2nd, 2006, the school, the people inside it, and the Amish community would be changed forever. I'm about to introduce a bunch of characters You don't need to keep track of the names necessarily, but we're going to do the victims a little justice here for a moment. Thanks to Deli's beautiful research. On that morning, six-year-old Rosanna King ran down the lane with her brother on their way to school. She and her brother lived in a farmette with horses and chickens. Rosanna's father operated a welding business about a mile away from their home. Her mother, a homemaker had just sewn her a new school dress Rosanna was a big help around the house, peeling potatoes and baking with her mother when her mother needed a hand. She was excited to get to school that day, just like she always was. A relative of hers said she was always eager to get up in the morning. It was her first year attending school, and she was definitely in her element. Her family said she was great at memory games and had a talent for reciting Bible verses she had memorized. But she could also be found playing with dolls or playing sports outside. Each morning on their walk to school, they met up with their relative, Esther King, and two of Esther's brothers. They would then cut across the fields toward the one-room schoolhouse. Esther was more than twice Rosanna's age, and at 13 years old, she was the second oldest in the school. Like Rosanna, Esther enjoyed playing word games. Scrabble was her favorite. Loved ones remembered how much she loved her stamp kit. Mm. She used it to make handmade cards with pictures and Bible verses to send to friends and relatives. Esther had six siblings, two sisters and four brothers. She shared a room with one of her sisters. The family had lost their father five years before when a non-Amish person crashed their vehicle into the back of her father's horse-drawn buggy.
1: Mm.
0: I can't imagine something more awful. No, also walking to school that morning were seven-year-old Lena and nine-year-old Mary Liz Miller. The girls were sisters, and they were extremely close. A family friend recalled, quote, "Where there was one, the other was." Mm. The girls shared a room and even slept in the same bed. In their bedroom, they had small cribs that held their baby dolls. Nine-year-old Mary Liz liked gardening and working in the barn with her dad. Her sister, seven-year-old Lena, enjoyed working in the house with her mom. She was a bit more talkative than Mary Liz, often getting so excited when speaking in Pennsylvania Dutch that her family would tease her and say they couldn't understand what she was saying.
1: I'm so glad you're telling the story because I'm already not okay.
0: No, it's just such a lovely portrayal of their life, Deli Bravo. But get ready. I'm not kidding, guys. Get ready. The violence is brief, but the... The aftermath is is very uh, heart-wrenching.
1: Yeah.
0: In a way that you're not expecting to, I think. So both girls had a productive summer. Lena and Mary Liz had helped a family member with their household tasks while she recovered from a surgery. They watered her flowers, helped her with laundry, and prepared vegetables for cooking. And Mary Liz had spent all summer working on math with her teacher and was hoping to do well that year despite struggling from time to time. As they walked to school on October 2nd, both girls were carrying their brand new lunch boxes. (laughs) Lena and Mary Liz walked to school that morning with eight-year-old Rachel Ann Stoltzfus and her three brothers. Rachel Ann was one of eight children, but she was the only redhead in her family. When she wasn't helping around the house, she liked to play with dolls and make crafts. On that particular morning, Rachel Ann ate a bowl of cereal before she and her brothers left for school. All four children usually kissed their mother when saying goodbye, but for whatever reason, they didn't on that day. No. In the distance, farther from the group, were the Fisher girls, 13-year-old Marion and 11-year-old Barbie, and 9-year-old Emma. They lived in a four-family enclave, a large connected household that included their parents and brothers, paternal grandparents, great-grandmother, aunt, and their aunt's two daughters. The family owned dairy cows, the oldest sister, Marion, had her own bedroom, but Barbie and Emma shared a room. On their walks to school, they avoided the roads and cut across the farm fields instead. The three sisters and one of their younger brothers often walked to school with children from nearby farms, including other Stoltzfuss sisters, not in the same family. Hmm. Eight-year-old Sarah Ann and 12-year-old Anna Mae Stoltzfuss were four years apart but as the only girls living in a house with six brothers, they mm-hmm. became very close. Yeah, I bet. They shared a room and each girl had a small dish on their dresser. And they often left playful notes in the dishes for each other, sharing a message or a joke. They had a trampoline outside their home that they loved to jump on. And when they weren't playing or in school, the girls helped their parents run their Amish-made furniture market stand. The eldest sister, Anna May, ran the register. Anna Mae also had a lot of responsibilities at home, often doing the family's laundry. On the morning of October 2nd, Anna Mae had gotten started on her household tasks, but wasn't able to finish them before she had to leave for school. She had wanted to stay a little while longer to finish them, but her family didn't want her to be late. Seven-year-old Naomi Rose Ebersol was not excited for school that day either. Even though Naomi loved school, she loved her parents even more. Nearly every morning when she left for school, she welled up with tears. She was small and shy, and she was the only girl in a family with five brothers. <laughs> a nurse in the community said, quote, We remember so well when the Embersols got their little girl, how happy they were.
1: No I, know, no. I know. And truthfully,
0: Naomi's brothers were happy to have her in their lives, too. They were very protective over her and she went along with them on whatever adventure they were getting to. If she asked them to play dolls with her, they did.
1: <laughs> <I'm, sighs> this is not Deep okay. Deep
0: breaths everybody. Deep breaths. One of Naomi's cutest quirks was that she loved collecting the mail. Almost every day she sat on the grassy bank by the mailbox waiting for it to be delivered. She also loved singing and her favorite hymns changed frequently. But on this autumn day, it was the Southern gospel song. I feel like traveling on. Its lyrics are in part. My heavenly home is bright and fair. I feel like traveling on. No pain or death can enter there. I feel like traveling on. (laughs) I know. (sighs) I know. When the students reached the school, they began filling in and taking their seats. Ears of red and purple corn decorated the two posts on the front porch. Each morning in the one-room schoolhouse, the students began their day with a Bible story, a prayer, and some singing. But this day was particularly exciting for the class because visitors had come to see the children that morning. From time to time, non-Amish people would sit in on classes, and the school welcomed it. A sign located near the blackboard read, quote, "'Visitors, bubble up our days.'" No. Several women with small children were joining the class that day. After a few lessons, the teacher dismissed the students for their first recess. And as they played, a man up the road at the local auction was standing outside by the soda machine watching them. Mm. 32-year-old Charles Carl Roberts IV, who everyone called Charlie, was a non-Amish man who lived just over a mile away. He drove a delivery truck, picking up milk overnight from Amish dairy farmers and delivering it to his employer, Northwest Food Products. He had stopped at some of the children's farms just the night before. He'd gotten off work around 3 a.m., helped his kids get ready for school between 7 and 7.45 a.m., and dropped them off at the bus stop at 8.45 a.m. When his wife left for a weekly church meeting at 9 a.m., Charlie ran some quick errands and then headed toward the Amish school. Recess ended just before 10 a.m., and the children started taking their seats again. But when they heard a vehicle driving up the gravel road to school, a few of them lingered at the windows to get a look at who else was coming to visit that day. Just before 10 a.m., Charlie Roberts parked a borrowed pickup truck in the white-fenced schoolyard, grabbed a shotgun that he'd brought with him, and entered the building. The front door was unlocked. As Charlie entered the school a female teacher slipped out and ran to find help at a nearby farm. He ordered all the children to lie on the floor in front of the blackboard. He then told them to be quiet and began pulling down the window shades. He began to target the girls in the classroom, binding their ankles with wire and plastic ties. The children wept with fear. Mm. As another school teacher escaped the classroom and called the police Charlie let the male students go as well as the women and children who were visiting the school. After running out of the building, the boys crammed into the outhouse and began praying out loud. Oh my God. Charlie began to lower the shades and when he got distracted by a faulty one that wouldn't lower, nine-year-old Emma Stoltzfus managed to slip out the back. (sighs) Charlie then used nails and lumber to barricade himself in the room with the girls that he'd restrained. Along with the nails and lumber, he'd brought an array of items, two rifles, a pistol, 600 rounds of ammunition, two cans of gunpowder, a stun gun, two knives, chains, wires, plastic flex ties. Quick trigger warning for sexual assault. Nothing happens, but trigger warning. He also brought two tubes of KY jelly and a board with 10 large eye bolts, intending to use them to restrain the girls and assault them.
1: (sighs) I of course I remember this story happening, mm-hmm. but I did not. Uh-uh. I don't remember anything about him or that this was so premeditated and awful and
0: targeted the
1: little girls, the girls. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I didn't either. And he was—you said thirty-six or something, thirty-two. Yeah, thirty-two. Wow, a young wow. man. Yep, with kids in school. With, yep. Fuck.
0: In a five-gallon bucket, he'd packed earplugs, toilet tissue, and a clean change of clothes. Barricaded inside the school with the girls, Charlie asked them to pray for him. Mm. He told the girls that he was angry with God and seeking revenge. During this time, he also used a cell phone to call his wife. She had just gotten home from her church meeting, and Charlie confessed to her that when he was 12 years old, he had molested two female family members who were three and five years old. He told her that he had been fantasizing about molesting children again. And at this point, seven minutes since the teacher had called 911, state troopers arrived. Mm, God. Charlie then told his wife, the police are here. I'm not coming home and hung up. Oh, God. Uh, why? 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 Uh, why? Why? are people so self-fashioned? Incapable of... Seeking help. Charlie then called 911 himself and spoke to the dispatcher. He told them to withdraw or he would begin shooting. In either an effort to distract Charlie or to spare the younger girls, the oldest girl, Marion, told Charlie, shoot me first. Oh, no. Her little sister, Barbie, said, shoot me second. Oh, my God. And another girl, Anna Mae, said, shoot me next. mm after lining up the girls at the front of the room, Charlie began firing. Oh, God. Police broke the school's windows and entered the building, and as they did, Charlie shot himself in the head. <sighs> He'd shot all ten girls. Three of them lay dead or dying, and two more died in the hospital early the next morning. They were Naomi Rose Eversoll, who tearfully said goodbye to her parents that morning, Marion Fisher, who asked to be shot first, Anna Mae Stoltzfus, who ran the cash register at her parents' market stand, and sisters Lena and Mary Liz Miller. The remaining five, Rosanna King, Sarah Ann Stoltzfus, Rachel Ann Stoltzfus, Esther King, and Barbie Fisher, survived gunshot wounds to the head and body. God. When Charlie's family learned of the attack, they were stunned. There was no indication that he had been planning it, his widow issued a written statement offering sympathy to the families of the victims. She said that she couldn't make sense of what had happened writing quote, the man that did this thing is not the Charles I was married to for nearly 10 years. And everyone who knew him agreed. Charlie Roberts had grown up in the area. He was homeschooled as a kid and his father was a police officer. He lived with his wife and three young children in a modular home with a trampoline and sandbox in the front yard. At the time of their shooting, their home was decorated for Halloween. Neighbors described him as jovial and well-liked. He had no criminal record or history of mental illness. And in a statement that inadvertently revealed a red flag, a family member said, quote, Charlie was a church-going man, but if anything bothered him, he didn't talk about it. I never heard an angry word come from Charlie. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Charlie's widow, Marie, described him as an attentive, devoted father. The couple had three children, but their daughter, Elise, had passed away just a few days after she was born, which had devastated him. She said that he spent time playing with them and talking to the, and taking them to soccer practice. His five-year-old son even tagged along when Charlie worked on house repairs, using his plastic tool set to help. Just a few months before the shootings, Charlie took his seven-year-old daughter along for one of his overnight shifts. But underneath the surface, a storm was brewing. Coworkers had noticed changes in his behaviors in the months leading up to the attack, and they had said he seemed depressed, which was a departure from his usual upbeat and outgoing personality. Then about a week before the murders, Charlie's personality switched right back to upbeat, The state police commissioner said this was likely the moment he began planning the shooting. Quote, we think that's when he decided to do what he did. It's like his worries and burdens were lifted from him. Charlie had been inspired by another shooting that took place just a week before the Amish school shooting. In Bailey, Colorado, a 53-year-old man held six female students captive at Platte Canyon High School. Another trigger warning for sexual assault, you guys. The perpetrator in that case brought two guns and a backpack full of sex toys, allowed the boys to leave the classroom, and lined up the girls against the blackboard, just as Charlie had done. He then sexually assaulted the girls over the course of three hours and gradually released four victims. Three hours? Yes. How, and I've never like, heard who, of this. I've no. never heard of this. How
1: did that? How?
0: Wow. Yeah. That's very upsetting. Horrifying. When a SWAT team later entered the room, a fifth girl escaped as gunfire erupted. The perpetrator used the sixth girl emily keys as a human shield before shooting her once in the head and then taking his own life these are things that happen in america i can't do it we just I do can't. that this just happens we're like yep no have all the guns 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 just have all the guns it's fine they, yeah we don't Send care our if our kids girls get lined up and oh my god sexually assaulted for three hours and then shot and traumatized and then amish kids and no, nope.
1: and uh, we god. don't even talk about it we didn't even know that that happened <sighs> yeah it's really how is this real life unokay yeah Yep. Yep.
0: In Australia, one woman was shot, <laughs> you know, like, right, like no, Nope, we're good. We're going to riot in the streets. And yeah, we were just like, that's fine. Another day in America. Uh, Charlie began purchasing items for the attack six days beforehand. In the pickup truck that was parked outside of the school, officers found a supply list he'd made, which included the candles and toilet paper, suggesting that he planned to be there for a while. Mm. Charlie bought supplies from the nearby hardware store that was run by the Amish. An employee told local reporters that he was a regular customer, but when asked if he was friendly, she shook her head no. Many suspected that Charlie had targeted the Amish community due to religious bias. But the state police commissioner dismissed this idea. Quote, he was angry with life. He was angry at God. It appears he chose the school because it was close to his home. It had the female victims he was looking for. And it probably seemed easier to get into than some
1: bigger school. Mm -hmm. Also, they're pacifists. I was going to say, it's like, it's a very easy target. Yes. In one of the
0: four suicide notes he'd left behind, Charlie indicated that he'd intended to die that day. Authorities released the first page of a three-page suicide note he'd written to his wife. It read, quote, I don't know how you put up with me all these years. I am not worthy of you. You are the perfect wife. You deserve so much better. We had so many good memories together, as well as the tragedy with Elise. It changed my life forever, and I haven't been the same since. It affected me in a way I never felt possible. I am filled with so much hate, hate toward myself, hate towards God, and an unimaginable emptiness. It seems like every time we do something fun, I think about how Elise wasn't here to share it with us, and I go right back to anger. News of the tragedy. And so you're just going to just, just gonna give so many more people that experience. It's like, that makes you feel better? That yeah. now thousands of people have to also feel the same way you do?
1: No. No, Mm. I can't. I just Mm -mm. don't
0: News of the tragedy traveled through the Amish community like a real-life game of telephone, passing from neighbor to neighbor, family to family. But it would be many hours before the families knew whether their children had died.
1: I cannot imagine. Mm
0: -mm. The assistant coroner on the case told PBS, quote, the families were obviously very distraught, not knowing whether their children were alive, dead. They didn't know. We didn't know who was who, The girls all wear the plain dresses. They don't have any ID on them. They also didn't carry backpacks or wear any clothing that would help them be identifiable. Mm -hmm. A mother of one of the victims said, quote, it was about 11.15 when we found out about what was going on. We didn't know if she was in a hospital somewhere or if she was at school because we didn't know there were some at the school that had died. Those five hours were a very long time to not know whether our daughter had survived or not. We just wanted to know. The hardest part was coming home and telling the ones at home that she's gone. Ugh, I, I know. I just can't. It's so sad. I know. Within hours, the Amish announced that they had forgiven him. <sighs> Later that day, members of the Nickel Mines community took food to Charlie's widow.
1: Took to Charlie's widow. No. Yeah. No, thank you for saying that again because I was like, don't know what those words mean in my ears. And that's how, when I read this story, that's exactly where I was like, yep, okay, now, yeah, yep. And
0: I was like, <sighs> wait, er, hold, whoa, to Charlie. Okay, so say they brought Charlie's widow food. Food. The Amish to- community. <laughs>
1: yeah. <Ooh.
0: sighs> yep. Mm <clears throat> I was talking. I met with some other podcasters last week, and they were like, "Do you ever cry in your stories?" So I was like, "Damn near every week at this point." Yes, yes, damn near every week. But I was not yeah. prepared for this story. Um, Delhi,
1: no, no, Delhi, no.
0: The Roberts family pastor said, "Quote: It was a very, very difficult place, a very desperate place, and in the middle of that situation, eight or nine o'clock that evening, the Amish neighbor walked in." In a sense, Grace walked in the door.
1: I just don't think I have that in me. I wish I did, but my God. Yep.
0: And with Grace walking in the door, Hope walked in the door. And we didn't know it at the time, but that's what happened. That was the effect of him coming in and saying to Charlie's dad, Chuck, we will forgive you. (laughs) Three days after the shooting, the Amish began burying the girls. They invited Robert's widow to the girls' funerals and they attended his.
1: Oh, my God. I know.
0: I know. Six days after the shooting, more than 30 Amish attended Charlie Robert's funeral, including parents of several of the victims. They stood beside each other to form a wall to block out the media cameras. One of the victim's fathers said that when he'd been invited, he declined, quote, first I said, no, I just didn't think I could do it. I don't think I want to. But the Saturday morning came around and we decided, okay, we want to go. And I came home from the burial thinking I was so grateful to God that I didn't need to make judgment on his soul. And there was just a wash of peace for me. it It was like unloading baggage. It was like, wow, I don't need to deal with this. This is God's territory. Oh my God. I know. Uh, we're almost through the excruciating beauty of the story, you guys. I promise. Oh. Donations poured in from around the world to support the Amish families. Most reports indicate that the total amount to be roughly 34.3 million dollars. Holy shit. Though many of the families were faced with expensive medical bills, they were sure to divert some of those proceeds in a fund for Charlie Roberts' family. <laughs> uh, a few weeks later, all the victims' families and the Robertses met at a local fire hall. One of them remembers many of the typically stoic Amish men tearfully sharing what was in their hearts They then brought forth a handcrafted crib they'd made for Robert's oldest daughter to play with her dolls. (sighs) One of the victim's grandfathers wrote of the experience, quote, for me and very likely all the rest involved, that afternoon was one of the most emotional times ever in our lifetime. I I think for all, no, I think for all involved in that regrettable experience, it was uplifting to meet each other. (sighs) And it's the forgiveness that has been the subject of adoration and wonder by outsiders. Most Americans who lived through this event remember the Amish community's heartwarming response to the tragedy. In an interview for PBS, historian Stephen M. Nolt said that forgiveness comes naturally to the Amish. Quote, forgiveness requires giving something up, giving up your right to revenge, giving up feelings of bitterness, whatever you define it. All of Amish life is structured around rituals of giving up, of self-surrender. I think for many of us, forgiveness is a hard thing because we think it's unnatural, because it's so unlike anything we do. We are all trained to never give up anything. For Amish people, it's hard, but it's not unnatural. A mother of one of the victims told PBS, quote, To me, when I think of forgiving, it doesn't mean that you have forgotten what he's done. But it means that you have released unto God the one who has offended you, and you have given up your right to seek revenge. I place the situation in God's hands and just accept that this is the way it was. And I choose not to hold it against Charles because it really doesn't help me anything anyway. But what was largely missing from the news coverage back then, and is still missing from the collective conversation today... Is how the media and our worldwide obsession with their forgiveness further traumatize the community. The majority of Amish people today refrain from being photographed due to their interpretation of the Second Commandment, which prohibits the creation of graven images. According to Amish beliefs, any visual representation of themselves, whether a photograph, painting, or film, fosters individualism and vanity. It is viewed as contrary to their values of community and humanity, which are the principles that govern their way of life. But then suddenly, this community was filled with reporters filming them and taking their photographs. The Amish community's response to the media coverage of the West Nickel Mine school shootings was divided at the time. Some members were appreciative that the media was there to tell their story. But by and large, the consensus today is that the intense media attention added to the tragedy. The media's aggressive coverage, with TV crews and reporters showing up from all over the world, shocked and disappointed many members of a community that was never comfortable with publicity to begin with. TV crews with large satellite trucks flocked around the schoolhouse. Newspaper reporters fanned out in the community. And one reporter wearing a pink dress described as, quote, outrageously inappropriate, tried to sneak into a funeral.
1: No. Yeah.
0: An Amish correspondent for their old order newspaper wrote, quote, the one thing that has been disappointing to the Amish is the news media and their feeding frenzy. Even those who lived nearby who weren't Amish were disturbed by the media onslaught. A local resident wrote to the paper saying, quote, in their pursuit of the news, they seem to have lost compassion and common courtesy. Some Amish initially willing to talk openly stopped doing so. Others who were still willing to talk to the press asked not to be named. Correspondents for Amish newspapers, aware that non-Amish reporters were reading, limited the information they provided. Two days after the shooting, the Amish community issued a public statement asking the media to, quote, refrain from close-up gawking and picture-taking and to show respect during the funerals and burials. Overall, there was a desire among some Amish members to move on and not constantly rehash the traumatic details of the incident. A spokesman for the Amish told the press, quote, we'd just like to be left alone. These people are trying to get their lives back together. Don't put pressure on the survivors. An Amish business owner echoed this point, saying, quote, we're just trying to get back to normal. Everything would get back to normal faster if you'd just let us be. Mm. Our fascination with their forgiveness bordered on obsession. David Weaver Zerker, an associate professor of American religious history at Messiah College, noted that the most demanding questions what reporters asked him about the shootings pertain to forgiveness. And this is evidenced by the fact that in researching the story, I, Deli, read over 50 articles, and the number of articles that didn't mention forgiveness can be counted on one hand. Wow. This says so much more about us than it does the Amish. In fact, historians and sociologists note that this obsession with Amish forgiveness perfectly mirrors how our attitudes toward the Amish have changed in the last hundred years. Beginning around 1900, the rest of the world turned their backs on the Amish because they refused to conform to our increasingly modern ways. They were flat out disliked and viewed as an embarrassing blemish on our society. One article from this period in the Philadelphia Inquirer reads, quote, Amish people getting themselves disliked, refused to take any part in patriotic movements, creates enmity to sect. Mm-hmm. This was exacerbated by the fact that the Amish are pacifists and refused to fight in World War I and II and worked clerical and other nonviolent jobs instead. So they did serve, but they refused to mm-hmm. fight. At the beginning of the 20th century, Amish and non-Amish children attended school together in one-room schoolhouses until they reached about 8th grade. And eventually, over time, the school year was lengthened and children went to school past 8th grade, but the Amish didn't want to conform to the standard. They felt it was unnecessary for schooling past the 8th grade when many children wouldn't need high school-level education for the jobs they'd be performing as adults. By the 1950s, many Amish people refused to send their children to high school, claiming that it was a violation of their freedom of religion. Parents were regularly jailed for failing to comply with state laws, and Amish parents in Wisconsin filed a lawsuit. And in 1971, the Supreme Court ruled in their favor, finding that the state laws violated their religious freedom. In the years leading up to this ruling, the legal battle was getting a lot of national press And this is when the attitudes toward the Amish changed. Americans were reading about the one-room schoolhouses with nostalgia, wishing that children were still being taught values in a school where everyone knew each other. Outsiders began looking at the Amish with sympathy and longing. Ever since, the Amish have been seen as holier than the rest of us, as martyrs who have, quote, real American values— This explains in part why America was obsessed with a violent act that took place in a one-room schoolhouse, but the violent act that inspired it, a shooting in a regular public high school, received very little press.
1: Hmm.
0: Within the days of the shooting, the community knocked down the schoolhouse. By mid-October, most of the girls had returned home from the hospital Neighbors and family members paid frequent visits to the victims' homes, bringing meals and helping with chores. Four of the girls were back in school by December, but seven-year-old Rosanna King, who loved playing memory games and memorized her favorite Bible verses, had suffered a serious brain injury. She was expected to die, and her family removed her from life support within two days of the shooting. But to everyone's amazement, she progressed from bed to wheelchair and began to recognize family members. Wow. I know. The fathers of the school children took advantage of the mild winter and began constructing a new school in January, and the Nichols Mines families found solace in having other families to lean on while they recovered from such an insane tragedy. One of the mothers who lost a child said, I don't know how I would feel if we had been the only ones. We have each other to come together and share. The families shared that sense of community with others, and in April of 2007, most of the parents who lost a child in the Nichols Mines shooting traveled to Blacksburg, Virginia, to hand deliver a comfort quilt to the families who had lost a loved one in the shooting. (sighs) It's been 17 years since the West Nickel Mines shooting. In 2016, victims and their loved ones were interviewed from a piece from The Guardian marking the 10-year anniversary. The oldest student at the school that day, Aaron Ash Jr., was 23 at the time, and when asked how he was feeling now, he said, quote, The heartache is still there. I take one day at a time. For years after the shooting, Aaron was tormented by the idea that he could have somehow saved his classmates. The memories still haunt him, and his father told the guardian, quote, Aaron had survivor's guilt. He lost his childhood that day. It bothered him and the other boys that they had not done something Some of them are still struggling with that 10 years on. He was terrified that a similar incident would happen again. And the new school had just been built when the Virginia Tech shooting happened. Mm. All of the children in Nichols' minds were traumatized again, including Aaron, trigger warning for disordered eating and suicide. His mother recalled, quote, we couldn't get him to eat After a growth spurt that winter, he went from five foot one to five foot six, but his weight dropped from 120 pounds to 90 pounds.
1: Oh, Lord.
0: Quote, he was completely anorexic. He was like a toothpick, said Aaron's dad. Aaron frequently came home from school suffering from panic attacks. And although he was getting counseling along with the rest of the victims and their families, he was still depressed and near death from starvation. Aaron was admitted to a secure hospital ward in the summer of 2007 and recovery took many months. His father said, "Quote, the way it was explained to us was that he couldn't control what happened in his life that day, but there was something he could control and that was what he ate." <laughs> when he was discharged from the hospital, 3 State Troopers came to visit him. As they sat together on the porch, the State Troopers told him that what happened to him was not his fault. They told him that things would have probably been much worse if he'd tried to intervene. Quote, it meant so much to me to hear it from them. It saved my sanity. If it hadn't been for that, I don't know how I would have handled it. At one point, I had thoughts of suicide. Despite the painful journey, Aaron now takes life one day at a time. At the time of his interview, he was working in the construction industry with hopes for a family in the future. Christ Stoltzfus, who lost his 12-year-old daughter, Anna Mae, planned to visit her grave on the 10-year anniversary. Quote, it will be comforting but also painful, he said. Anna Mae's sister, Sarah Ann, who once left secret notes to her sister on their dresser, was shot but survived. At the time of the interview, she was 18 years old. Her dad described her as healthy and said she had recovered well. The effects of the tragedy linger, and some details remain misunderstood. On the day of the shooting, 11-year-old Barbie Fisher sat in class with her two sisters, Emma and Marion. Emma was nine at the time, and she quietly escaped. Barbie remembers Charlie Roberts standing over them with a gun, talking about getting revenge on God, when Marion said, shoot me first. Barbie and Anna Mae followed suit, and Barbie was shot multiple times in the shoulder and hand. She was the only one of the three of them to survive, while Marion was widely believed to have superhuman courage, sacrificing herself so that the younger girls might live. But the truth is, no one knows why she did it. Barbie said that when her sister spoke, her face was full of distress and not stoicism. Mm. The girl's parents said that it will probably always be a mystery, and they don't want their daughter portrayed as more special than any other child caught up in the tragedy. <laughs> The Fishers also don't want their community's decision to forgive Charlie Roberts to be seen as some amazing simple action that only the Amish could be capable of. They want it to be seen as what it was, a complex, complicated choice. The Fishers' mother told the Guardian, quote, It's not a once-and-done thing. It's a lifelong process. The principle of forgiveness is integral to the Amish, but it takes time for individual emotions to align with such a profound outward decision. The Fisher's father said that although they chose to forgive, they still feel angry seeing their daughters fighting for their lives in the hospital. Anna Mae father said of forgiveness, quote, It's a journey. I still made that immediate choice in principle, but it took me a few years until I could feel that I really meant it inside of me to forgive Charlie. When he did reach that point, he said, I felt a great weight falling off of me. I felt lighter. He said that this is a feeling you can never get if you only forgive simply out of obligation. Aaron Esch's father said that the Amish didn't want to be thought of as saintly nor as, quote, stoically stuffing their feelings into a box. He said that the parents who lost their children that day started to look at forgiveness as, quote, the one good thing that can come out of this tragedy. Chris Stoltfus said that none of those affected by the shooting have left their community or their church and their old world way of life hasn't changed. But one thing has, they're much closer now with outsiders after so many people from the, after so many people from around the world helped them. One of those outsiders is an unnamed woman who was observing the school that day. She was pregnant at the time and was forever changed by Naomi Rose Ebersole, the seven-year-old girl who sniffed her way to school, heartbroken that she had to leave her parents. The woman tried to console her as she cried with wide eyes, curling up on the schoolhouse floor. And after her death, the woman named her newborn Naomi Rose. No. Almost done, babes. Almost done. There's some more crying to be had, but oof. Terry Roberts... Charlie's mother died in 2017. She was interviewed by the Washington Post the previous year in another piece marking the 10-year anniversary of the shooting. In it, she recounted how she developed a close relationship with the Amish. Nine months after the shooting, Terry invited the Amish families to her home for a picnic. They all came, including Rosanna King, who was wheelchair-bound, staring straight ahead with her mouth agape, unable to speak or feed herself. At the picnic, Terry cradled Rosanna in her arms, singing her lullabies. As she played with Rosanna, Terry asked her mother if she could help
1: care for her. (sighs)
0: For 10 years after the shooting, Terry spent nearly every Thursday evening at the King family farm, bathing her and reading to her until bedtime. As a special treat, she fed her pureed raspberry sauce she made especially for her. Terry cried uncontrollably on the drive home after the first few visits, heartbroken that her son had caused such a bright young girl to be severely handicapped. Rosanna's father said of Terry, quote, she's strong enough, she has enough of a backbone to go out and become such a part of the life of a girl that her son tried to kill. (sighs) She's so much a part of our routine that there's something missing when she's not there. She's welcome here anytime. Aaron S. Jr. felt the same way about her. They became close after the shooting and they cared deeply for one another. She checked in often with his eating and he sent her messages to see how she was feeling or to let her know that he'd been out of town. He said of Terry, quote, over the past 10 years, she's been the biggest inspiration to us all for sure. We all had it tough, but I can't imagine being in her shoes. I just can't imagine. The week of the 10 year anniversary had been hard for him, but he asked the Guardian to thank the rest of the world for its support. i <sighs> literally have one more sentence. sometimes
1: those are the hardest ones
0: in both 2006 and the decade since quote without that there is no way I would have made it through that my angels
1: wow
0: is the stunning story of the West Nickel Mines school shooting Uh, someone is getting uh, sued for that one (laughs) deli deli Deli. my god man Uh, i know
1: just like there's so many things to say and then i know not i know know, i don't even think we should no i just let it be that story can
0: just tell its own self Oh my god. I could never ever begin to do it any sort of justice. I would just sound like no. a like a box of gravel trying to <laughs> have opinions or thoughts or yeah. So I also definitely cannot do name-timer shouty-outies. No, no. But my god, Deli, thank you so much. And yeah. Go to hell because <laughs>
1: <sighs> Oof. Ooh. I was not prepared. I know. I And I'm grateful for it. I really am. I, I've got a lot. I've got a lot of bones to pick with myself or, you know, just. Yeah. It's a real. Yep. That's deep. That shit is yeah. deep. Yeah.
0: As much as I think I check in with those things and explore those themes, I was not prepared for this one. No. Yep. Nope. So. No. We love you guys so much.
1: And (laughs) we really do. uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm so grateful for this podcast and for all of you. And we don't need an Ann Remember this week. We don't need anything.
1: We just can just fade to 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 black.
0: (laughs) just going to lay down on the grass for a while and stare up into the great abyss because that is. What is warranted after a story like that? Thank you again, Deli. Bravo.
1: Yes. Yes. Thank you for doing it. And I'm, again, I'm imagining uh, the heartache that she felt also putting it together. So if she was here, she would also be weeping with Courtney.
0: No doubt. I know we all, all y'all are too. So there you go. Next week, business as usual, but this week we'll just fade to black we love you guys that's so much right. we love we you we love you endlessly. we really do and we'll see you then take care mm-hmm. of each other take care of yourselves
1: yes give everyone you know hugs. yep uh kisses because that's not weird and kindnesses at least in your mind and definitely
0: <laughs> and then kiss them again we love you babies yes. see them we
1: love you so much goodbye goodbye goodbye, goodbye.